So this fall, we've been asking the question, why church? Seeking to understand who we are and what we've been called to as God's people. We've learned that the church is the place where the kingdom of God breaks through into the life of the world. It's where we discover what it means to be truly human, where we become part of God's family, experience real diversity, are called to live as aliens and to operate a hospital for the sinful and the broken. We've learned that God inhabits us through his Holy Spirit and that we are called his disciples, angels, martyrs, and worshipers. Well, today as we come to the end of this series, we're going to conclude by considering the fact that we are all pilgrims on a journey. In our weekly staff meeting uh, every week, we discuss the Bible passage for the upcoming Sunday. And this week, the staff asked if I planned this topic to coincide with Thanksgiving. Some of them suggested that um, in order to really drive the point home that I should wear stockings and short breeches and a pilgrim hat uh, just to make sure everybody gets the point. And I had to confess that when I put this series together, I actually wasn't thinking about Thanksgiving at all. Instead, I was thinking about pilgrims in the much broader sense of the word. So now that you have that image of me in your head wearing short britches, tights, a pilgrim hat, I want you to delete it permanently. It's not the kind of pilgrim we're talking about this morning. Pilgrims are defined by their destination. They're headed somewhere. They live on purpose with their chins up, their eyes forward. Pilgrims can make themselves comfortable anywhere, but they're never truly at home until they reach their destination. This is us. We're a pilgrim people. And we may have 70 or 80 years here on earth, but an eternity awaits us. An eternity in which those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ We'll live together in a world that's been rescued and restored. One day we will finally arrive at home in bodies that have been made whole in the resurrection of the dead. For now though, we're a pilgrim people and our lives find meaning in this fact that we are heading home. But with this in mind, I want to ask you to turn to one of the most familiar passages in the whole Bible That's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And as we consider these words together, I want you to think of them as the Pilgrim's Creed. So you can find it on page 959 in the Red Bibles. And we're going to break the chapter down into three sections, beginning with verses 1 to 3, where Paul argues for the preeminence of love. Now for most of this letter, Paul's been talking about the life of the church. He's been giving instructions on worship, marriage, singleness, and spiritual gifts. Along the way, he has corrected the Corinthians' shockingly selfish behavior and urged them to be united to one another. Well, this chapter, chapter 13, forms the climax of his argument. It is not about romantic love or marital love, even though we always hear this read at weddings. It's about the love that we are to have for each other as members of the body of Christ. And according to Paul, in this life of faith together, nothing is more important or powerful than love. So verse one, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, 
but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. In the first century, the city of Corinth, to whom the the letter was written, was known as a center for bronze production. So the noisy gong that Paul mentions in verse 1, it's probably a reference to a type of bronze acoustic vessel used in theaters to help amplify the voice of the actors. The clanging cymbal was actually a popular noisemaker associated with a cult that was famous for wild and noisy worship. As one scholar puts it, Paul is saying to his friends, look, even if you speak with the heavenly language of of angels, if you don't love, your words are like the empty echo of an actor's speech or the noise of frenzied pagan worship. Paul is hitting hard. Without love, your faith, it's an empty show. You can be a super Christian, he says, speaking in tongues, sharing prophecy, filled with knowledge and faith, giving away all that you have, and you can do this selfishly, lovelessly, and with a spirit of arrogance. Without love, you've got nothing. But what is love exactly? You know, there's a popular slogan floating around our culture that that says, love is love. Love is love. And it seems to mean that love is whatever you define it to be as long as you don't offend anyone when you're doing it. It's the sort of statement that can be used to defend just about anything. It sounds nice, but it's completely meaningless. By contrast, Paul's understanding of love, it's neither vague nor open to manipulation because it was defined for him in the life of Jesus Christ. Flip back to our gospel reading for just a moment. It's John 13 on page 900. Jesus has just eaten his last supper with the disciples. He's washed their feet and told them that he's about to be betrayed and killed. And he's doing all of this in order to rescue them from sin and from death. Jesus then says to them in verse 33, he says, little children, Yet a little while I'm with you. You'll seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I'm going, you can't come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now this command to love, it wasn't actually new. Jesus had told his followers many times that the first and greatest commandment was to love God and the second was to love their neighbors as themselves. What's new is the context in which the command is being given. Jesus says, as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The context is the cross where Jesus' love becomes shockingly concrete in the shedding of blood and the breaking of his body. Love is what God does by dying on the cross. As John writes in a later letter, 
In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, our love for others is the natural consequence of God's love for us. It's the extension of his reconciling love through which others catch a glimpse of God's love for them. And we show this love in our willingness to lay down everything for our families, our friends, our neighbors, and yes, even our enemies. So love's not a feeling, nor is it an an attitude. It's a way of being. It's the way of Jesus Christ. But what does it look like in practice? That's what Paul turns to next as he shifts from arguing for the preeminence of love to explaining the practice of love in verses four to seven. Love is patient and kind, he writes. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Of all the ways in which Paul could have described love, he chooses to begin with patience. How extraordinarily unromantic and yet how profoundly true. Anyone who has ever truly loved another person knows that love is patient. And when love is patient, it's also kind. You know, Paul has used these two terms together elsewhere. In Romans 2, he uses them to describe God. As God loves us, so are we to love each other. Having described love positively, Paul then specifies what it is not in a litany of negatives. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant. And on he goes. And what Paul says here, it's intended as a correction. Earlier in the letter, Paul has actually used all of these same terms to describe the Corinthians. They are envious and boastful. They are arrogant and rude, irritable and resentful. And they rejoice when wrong is done to others. You know, the sad truth is that most of us need the same correction. Our problem isn't so much that we don't know what love looks like, but that we limit whom we love. We try to love our best friends or family or spouse in the way that Paul describes, but everyone? Come on. That, however, is the charge. What sets the church apart is the way in which we love, not just those who are close to us, but those who are different and difficult. Paul ends his list with four positives. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It, it almost makes love sound a little naive. All things, really? The first 12 chapters of this letter, they make it abundantly clear that love isn't just another word for tolerance. 
Paul is passionately intolerant of the Corinthians' sexual immorality, their greediness, their selfishness. He's chastised them for being thoughtless and for exploiting others. The kind of love that bears all things and believes all things is the love that Paul is showing in this letter as he refuses to give up on the Corinthians and calls them to obedience. So it's far from naive. Another way to translate this sequence in verse 7 is to say this, there's no limit to love's faith, love's hope, and love's endurance. Love will take anything you can throw at it. It has no season. It operates under all conditions. It's not susceptible to changes in mood. Love refuses to give up. Now, because of this, sometimes love will look foolish. The world tells us to stand up for ourselves, to demand our rights, to claim our space. But the model for love that we have in Jesus Christ is the Son of God who gave up his throne, who entered our space, surrendered his rights, and stood up for us by dying in our place. He was, he was mocked as a fool when he did. And we too will look like fools if we love like he loves but that's the love we're called to give. So how do we learn to love like this? The first step is to receive this love from Jesus. So Jesus said to his disciples, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. It is impossible for us to love like this apart from being loved like this. Jesus has been patient with you. He's been kind to you. He bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things with you because he loves you. Paul will say later in the chapter that we're fully known by God. I find this shocking and amazing. God knows us inside and out, every thought, every fear, every drop of anger and resentment, and he still loves us. So the only way we will ever learn to love is by knowing that we are loved already. But loving others is still hard. It's still hard because our hearts, they're so full of other things. I don't know what fills your heart today. You may be grieving a lost opportunity or the death of a loved one. You may be stressed by a crisis at work restless with boredom, filled with anxiety for an adult child. Your heart may be wound up tight with tension over a looming deadline or swollen with resentment because your spouse has treated you poorly. Our hearts are always filled with something. And if we are ever going to learn to love in the way that Paul describes, we're going to have to become profoundly self-aware and then decisively self-forgetful. What I mean, what I mean by this is that we have to be honest about what's going on in our own hearts. We have to take our grief, stress, anxiety, and pride to the Lord and lay it down before him 
asking him to fill us with his love. Only then can we turn to others in love. Only then can we forget ourselves and focus on the needs of those around us. Only when we have allowed Jesus to care for our needs can we tend to the needs of others and love with the love that he's shown us. The love that Paul describes here, it's not instinctive or emotional. It's thoughtful, careful, disciplined, and persistent. It's self-aware and self-forgetful. It's also forward-looking. So notice how Paul ends this paragraph in essentially the same way with which he began it. Love is patient, he says at the outset. And he ends by saying that love endures all things. Love persists throughout the hardship and hostility of this world as it waits for the return of Jesus. This leads us into the final paragraph. Paul began by arguing for the preeminence of love. He then turned his attention to the practice of love. And now he ends by looking forward to the perfection of love in eternity. So verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. In this final paragraph, Paul lifts his eyes from this life and looks directly into the next. He's thinking ahead to the time of Christ's return, to the resurrection of the dead and the renewal of creation. At that time, there'll be no need for prophecy because God himself will speak to his people. There'll be no special tongues because we'll share the language of God. Every partial thing we know about God will expand from being a matter of faith or trust to being a matter of lived reality because we'll be in the presence of God himself. For now, though, we're like children. It's so interesting to me that Jesus also referred to his disciples as children when he gave them the command to love in John 13, just like Paul refers to the Corinthians as children here. We're immature. Our understanding is limited. We can't see things as clearly as we want. But you know what we can do? We can still love. A child can love. Children can love better than just about anybody else, can't they? And when we love, we participate in the perfection of the new creation. Because when everything else fades, love remains. So at the beginning of the sermon, I asked you to think of 1 Corinthians 13 as the Pilgrim's Creed. It's not so much a statement of what we believe as it is a declaration of who we want to be and how we want to live. A pilgrim is always thinking about where he's headed. It shapes how he lives in the present, the decisions he makes, the turns he takes. Paul's the quintessential pilgrim. He always has the end of things in mind. And that's why he is always striving to love. 
He knows that everything else will fade, but that the love we show to others, just like the love we've been shown by God, will endure forever. He knows from experience that when we love others, we get a glimpse of heaven because we're participating in the eternal love of God. Why, church? Because it's here that we learn to love. It's here that we're formed in love. And it's here as we live together that we are drawn into the perfect and eternal love of God. Let's pray. Lord God, would you draw us into this love today? Would we know more powerfully and profoundly than ever before your love for us? Your love shown in the giving of your own life, Jesus. Your love shown in bearing with us and persisting. Your love shown in drawing us to eternal life to you. May we know your love for us. May we receive it with joy. And may we in turn be given the gift of being able to love those around us with the same love. May this community and may your church worldwide be known as a community formed and shaped and founded in love. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.